Hello, and welcome back to Somebody Call a Doctor, a podcast stemmed in curiosity, where we interview new PhDs and PhD candidates to better understand the diverse research topics being studied and talk about the impact their outcomes will have on technology and society. I'm your host, Colin Andrews. Today, we'll be talking to PhD candidate Rob Christensen about the indigenous people of Argentina and their struggles against man and the environment. Rob Christensen is a PhD candidate in history at Georgetown. His research focuses on studying indigenous people in South America and understanding how the environment and man-made conflict impacted the socioeconomic order in their communities. We'll be talking about his research and its implications and ask him why you'd call him if somebody said, somebody call a doctor. And now, welcome Rob. Rob, thanks so much for being here. Welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Yeah, thanks so much. So why don't we start off just to give a quick background introduction well, I am a PhD candidate at Georgetown University in history, working on a dissertation on indigenous people in Argentina. Wow, wonderful. Okay. And you just became a candidate, is that correct? That's right. I think the forums are still technically processing at the graduate school, but... I'm sure it always is. Yeah, there's always something processing. Great. So this is a very different topic than what we've normally had on the show so far, which is mainly engineering topics or things to do directly with engineering. So I'm really interested to see how we can connect this back to kind of our broader theme of the environment. Yeah, but why don't we start off with a research or a summary of your research and and why it matters. So what's the specific event you're researching and what does it help us understand about broader historical trends? Yeah, so what I'm looking at is the transition in Argentina between frontier areas that are controlled by indigenous people to commercial agriculture during the late 19th and early 20th century. That entails especially a focus on what they call the conquest of the desert or the conquest of the Chaco on the northern and southern frontiers, respectively, where the national government sent in the army to conquer independent indigenous communities that were, in some senses, doing pretty well for themselves economically and also ecologically. What came afterward was a lot of uh, large-scale commercial ranching and agriculture that was, I think, generally a lot worse for the environment in those areas, but in very different ways on the different frontiers. How autonomous was Argentina at this point? Oh, completely. Okay. Independence, well, depending on how you want to measure it, starts maybe 1806 or 1810, 11. So when you talk about the government, it really is the government of specifically Argentina. That's right. And there have been kind of two competing governments for a lot of Argentina's history during the early 19th century. But by this point, they have got it together and they have one national unified government that takes decisive action. And that's probably why they choose to act at this particular point, even though they would have probably liked to have done something like this 50 years earlier. Hmm. So what makes this specific example of the conquest of the desert stand out in historical significance? Why'd you pick it? And and does it generalize to other conquests around the world? Uh, Certainly. It has a lot of relevance to other, I guess we might call them like pioneer environment interactions. Probably a better word for that. But it particularly stood out to me because I was already interested in Argentina and started looking for ways that I could come up with a project that could look at changes to the environment. And this seems like probably the most drastic one that I could find. And certainly has a lot of relevance for other places. I mean, my my main frame of reference is the U.S. West, and I see 
so many parallels between stuff I lived at home and saw out there and things that I'm reading in these old travelers reports and geologists findings and stuff. Yeah. So I'm curious when you're writing your papers and when you're, when you're building your presentations and your research, are you bringing in things like that from your experience in the West of the United States or other, other things around the world? Or is it really mostly focused on Argentina and that conquest in the desert? Well, any good historical project tries to speak to as many audiences or a lot at least. So yeah, I'm trying to break out as much as I can and relate it to other people so I can hopefully get a few more readers down the line. It's also part of how I think Georgetown tries to train us as environmental historians, think globally about all these interconnected and related processes. Also, perhaps most importantly for me at this point, it's given me a lot of good inspiration looking at a book on the Ukrainian steppe besides the U.S. West. There's a great one on the interiors of India about frontiers Mm. there. Yeah, Global Frontier Studies has... I mean, it's all over in Asia and places that kind of surprised me at first, but Hmm. has really informed what I've done. And I hope to feed back into that too. Great. So just to be clear before we kind of go on to the next question, what was the specific result of the conquest of the desert? Yeah. Indigenous people on the southern frontier had been autonomous, self-governing, a couple large confederacies. Those were completely broken and their residents, for the most part, were funneled into prisoner camps for a while and eventually resettled into heavily policed new organized national territories occupied by the army. In the northern frontier, they were kind of forced out of traditional nomadic subsistence patterns into wage labor where they could, at least as supplementary to subsistence. So for the most part, it's it's different ways of reducing people's autonomy, making sure they couldn't make a living the way they had before so that they would have to allow either Creole or European settlers to use the land for agriculture or ranching and to okay. be drawn into the wage labor force. And this was against their will? Yeah. They resisted with lance and bolas, much they could. Okay, perfect. So one other thing that you mentioned in your research is how weather patterns impacted that result. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So by complete coincidence, the most decisive phase of the conquest of the desert happened during the most intense El Nino of the 19th century. Hmm. So that created some weather patterns that disproportionately advantaged the Creole army over indigenous forces. There are a lot of traditionally the reason why Creoles won is explained with the repeater rifle and some other technology, but that technology was sometimes also enabled by the weather. So El Nino in this part of Argentina is experienced as high runoff from the mountains, extra snow in the mountains, less rain in Argentina in this northern Patagonia area. So that translates to difficult mobility. For example, indigenous people, the polities were not just in Argentina. They're built on kinship ties that ran across the Andes into Chile. And you find all of the important caciques have kin on both sides of the Andes. And when they are going to go on a military campaign, a lot of people 
would cross over, whether it's Chileans that want to mount a military campaign or Argentine, well, I should say, indigenous people residing in Chile or indigenous people residing in Argentina. Warriors are coming from either side to fight. During the El Nino, extra snow blocked the passes in the mountains wow. so that people couldn't cross for three or four extra months of the year. Normally, that's three months from what I can tell from the documents. And it ended up being hmm. six months during this particular year. That extra snow translated into extra runoff in the rivers. In particular, we can look at the Rio Negro, where the Argentine Navy was able to bring a gunboat up the Rio Negro that is normally not deep enough for them to bring this wow. ocean-going gunboat. And they used it to occupy what everyone talks over and over again about being the key to controlling northern Patagonia, this island wow. called Choele Choel, that indigenous people and the government had fought over before. But not only is like is there a moat that rises, the river gets deeper precisely right after the Creoles have occupied the island already. But then they can bring the boat up to help protect their supply lines. Yeah. There's a lot of compounding factors, but this intense weather makes things a lot tougher for indigenous people and gives some advantages to Creoles. So it wasn't necessarily one large storm or something like that that wiped out a large percentage of the population or anything like that. It was more of these compounding factors like you talked about. That's right. Interesting. You also talk about how the structure of the indigenous societies had changed in the last 200 years or so before the conquest, making them structurally vulnerable to economic depressions and the total war they experienced. Are there examples of how they may have evolved that would have made them more resistant to what happened or societies that have done so? I don't think so. Not that I can think of at the top of my head, at least. There are lots of parallels for societies making the same choice they did. Hmm. There's a book called The Contested Plains about Colorado and Kansas and indigenous people in the Great Plains of North America. And the author outlines a choice that indigenous people there made that I think is the same as the one that happens on in Pampas Patagonia in Argentina and Chile, hmm. where indigenous people have the opportunity to enrich themselves and acquire new technology and material comforts at the risk of becoming dependent on interactions that they can't control as much and a less stable ecological base. So by, for example, becoming equestrian societies that are dependent on, in the case of Pampas Patagonia, huge scale cattle drives and selling off to markets in Chile to supply the Pacific world. That means giving up a lot of traditional ecological knowledge to favor cattle production and also some smaller scale agriculture that is a kind of newer development. So they... And that's just knowledge that's lost generationally? I think so. It, it certainly becomes less important and it, it's, there's a population growth perhaps beyond what hunting and gathering could have sustained. What I can see is that by the time of the conquest, the indigenous people are not able to sustain themselves on hunting and gathering anymore. So when the markets get cut off, they are starving in a lot of places. Market dependence, yeah, gives them a chance to make a lot of money and become more comfortable, but you also become dependent on access to the market. And when the person who controls the market, the national government, doesn't want to trade with you anymore, yeah, that puts you out on a limb. Yeah. Or likewise. So they, became, they became dependent on it. That's right. And I don't want to just say 
that dependence on access to markets is necessarily like a bad thing that limits their autonomy because the growth of these societies, they become a lot more politically complex and interconnected because of the transandian cattle drives and the chance they have to acquire prestige goods. And a lot of those prestige goods are used to build ritual kinship ties that let people have build more complex and large polities like these these large confederacies that develop in Pampas Patagonia stretch over areas that are huge contain lots of people and they they didn't exist before the dependence on the cattle economy so it makes possible a new type of existence but you're a little bit more fragile in what you can weather in this growth okay great you said something about from what you can tell from your sources how do you get information from the 19th and 20th century? And how do you get information not only from weather patterns and things like that, but also about the military conquests and how things went down? Well, there's a couple different options you have. One of the most interesting that historians have traditionally not bothered with too much is looking at proxy data. And I guess mm-hmm. that's pretty new. The science of it is, is fairly new. So I can look at records of sediment cores people pull out of the lake bed and you can understand something about the precipitation. If they happen in a certain way, you can tell year by year how they relate. There's also sometimes weather data and things like that. You can find pollen data that is trapped in peat bogs and things. There's a lot of ways yeah. that nature preserves records that we can go back on. Sounds like Jurassic Park with the uh, <laughs> mosquito in the amber, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, and they, they use that a lot for looking at the plague. That's a whole different story, but... Okay. Yeah, anyway. That's cool. Then, of course, the military keeps the best records of anybody. So I spent a lot of time digging through their archive last summer. And they just have all sorts of... In Argentina? Yes. Wonderful. They have all these requisition forms. So you can tell they're planting lots of alfalfa as they advance the line of their forts going south because they're always asking for more alfalfa seed. That's changing the environment there as they're planting new types of grass. It's interesting that you can come to those conclusions when the ability to get facts is very limited by degradation over time, I'd assume. So what are, what are some trade-offs you made or how do you vet their accuracy? How, do you, how, do you, how are you able to say like, yes, they plant more of this plant and therefore it changes the environment? Well, you can see they're requesting alfalfa seed for one mm-hmm. on both frontiers. And then say, for example, you read the report of any number of the scientific attaches with the expedition and they're talking about what they're finding, giving you all the scientific names of all the plants they can find, where they're finding them. There's lots of records. So they're like, we found all of these European weeds growing in an arroyo a thousand miles from anywhere. So how did they get here? Must have been a colony. I don't imagine that the weeds could have just spread on their own. Yeah. So you're just sifting for gold, basically, through all that information. Yep. And it's tough because, especially with indigenous people, they left very few written records of what they're doing. So you have to filter through the Creole perspective to try and figure out how they're thinking about it through a couple layers down from how the Argentines are thinking about it. And what language is any Creole record in? Oh, that's all Spanish. It's, it is in Spanish. Okay. There's, and you're able to speak, read Spanish? Yep. Okay. There are a handful of things in Mapunungun, but I cannot <laughs> read that. And it's, it's tricky. Yeah work with translators or something if you need to, I would assume. 
<laughs> yeah, well, the, most of the stuff ends up because the scribes were indigenous people could only learn from Creoles. They wrote yeah. everything in Spanish, and then when they would send messages back and forth between different captains or caciques, and it, it would be translated out of the Spanish that was written down because there wasn't okay. really much written Mapudungun. There must be so much. I mean, even just going from Spanish to English, there, there must be things lost in translation. Yeah, and there's a well. There's a whole burgeoning body of scholarship on the different ways that categories don't align exactly between the two languages. Hmm. Oh, that's cool. I'm sure that that's a that's a whole other episode there. <laughs> um, yes. So going through all this information, has there been anything that's really just kind of where you struck gold and it's been incredibly exciting, or are there any things you're really searching for that would really hammer home a conclusion? Well, hmm. One little story that I've found, and I'm, I'm still looking for more information about it, is that after the conquest on the southern frontier, you know, a lot of people get sent, they get put into these prison camps, and then at least 600, but I think the number is closer to a couple thousand from the southern frontier, get sent to work on these sugar plantations on the northern frontier. And you can find these defensores de paz y menores that are supposed to be like social workers to go check in on how these guys are doing at these sugar plantations in the north. Okay. Who just who talk about the way that going from one environment to another, going from living independently to working on a sugar plantation under close supervision in humid semi-tropical environment has in a different disease environment really shook a lot of these indigenous people and What's really interesting is that they're working alongside indigenous people from the northern frontier. And the southerners all die or run off into the woods. It's hard to trust exactly what some of these people say. But they're all gone within a few years. They die at disproportional rates from disease. Then the people from the north, who aren't necessarily happy working on the plantations, but it's fine. They keep doing it for decades afterward. And the Mapuches are all gone within like five years. Wow. So I want to make I want to find more about their story, but it's it's very interesting. It seems like there's a differential vulnerability to malaria for one that's on these plantations, so that the northerners are less affected by malaria than the southern frontier indigenous people because wow. of the biology of how it happens if you've been exposed before. And and this digs deep into some of Argentina's insecurities about its northwest being backward and actually as they say but it's actually kind of just a little bit about the environment people who move there so it's incredibly interesting how does understanding what happens and being able to build arguments about what happened help us make decisions in the future whether it's about climate or military or politics whatever it is well the thing that is most exciting to me about history is to see that the present is not the way it is inevitably or that there used to be different ways of doing things and thinking about things, and they give us some options for finding ideas for how to move forward. So the way that commercial agriculture developed in Pampas Patagonia was a lot more detrimental to the environment than the indigenous system was. And that's not to say that it was flawless for sure, but as we try to find more sustainable ways to interact with the environment, we can look to some of these different types of systems that people had in the past, I think, to find other options or to inspire us to go in different directions and to realize that we're not stuck necessarily in the way that things are. Are there ex- 
examples from recent history where weather patterns might have played a role in the outcome of an event and you, you wish you had had some say in it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'm too much of a newcomer to maybe too much of a got my perspective facing backwards into the past to see yeah. anything like that. But I know people talk about this in contemporary military conflicts. Yeah. And it's it's something that they plan for now. Contingency against different different potential weather patterns. Yep. One thing I can say, I suppose, is that I think it's important for Argentina as they come to terms with the things in their past that are less than that are a little bit unsavory, to put mm-hmm. it very lightly. To recognize the ways that say for example the traditional explanation is that the National Army had better weapons and superior soldiers because in kind of a eugenic, racist sort of way, they were just better than the indigenous people. And drawing attention to the ways that some of these, the, to that victory was contingent and dependent on an extreme weather event kind of undermines a big yeah. tenet of that. A big part of their history as they tell it. Yeah. So we, we've also heard a lot about mechanisms that cause or measure climate change in other episodes of this podcast. So how could we use your research to understand the impact of climate change going forward and maybe react to it differently? Yeah, if there's one thing I would, I think that I can offer, it would be looking at disproportionate impacts. I've done some research looking really early into indigenous history, or I should say prehistory at this point, that I think maybe illustrates this a little better. The Little Ice Age and the medieval climate anomaly in Europe are thought of as like a good period during the medieval climate anomaly and a bad period during the Little Ice Age. Mm. And it has to be more complicated than that. Looking at the archaeological record for indigenous people in Patagonia, I think you can see that the medieval climate anomaly was in fact kind of a worse period for them. And the Little Ice Age was a better period for them because they had such different economies and social structures and an environment that was different. So the Little Ice Age is uh, generally wetter and cooler around the world. That's true for Europe, where a lot of the first and most in-depth studies were done. But it's also true for Patagonia, Argentine Patagonia at least. And being cooler is not so much a problem there. Being wetter is a great thing when you live in a extreme desert like they do. Yeah. So they were able to expand their settlements. And you can see a lot of ways that they prospered because of what was to agricultural societies a very difficult time. So thinking about how we can adapt to climate change or how we can understand the impacts of climate change we need to think about ways that we can structure our society, change the things that we depend on, the ways that we provide for ourselves to optimize resilience and flexibility. I think for hunter-gatherers, that's why things worked better. So that's the sort of thing I would encourage looking into. That's great. And it sounds like it's not one single answer either. It sounds like it's going to look very different for Argentina versus Sub-Saharan Africa versus people in the United States. Absolutely. Who have different things around them in their environment. Yep. Great. So it, it just we've talked mostly about your research and, and your field. Are there any other areas of research in your field that you find interesting that uh, either you or people you know are working on? Oh, there's so much good stuff going on right now. 
The one thing I'm working on that I haven't got to talk much about yet is historical epidemiology, which I think is also a big part of this particular event, mostly talking about the specifics of a smallpox epidemic, Hmm. which has mostly just been understood as like, this thing happened and it made things bad for indigenous people. But it looks to me like that's another big contingent factor that really worked against indigenous people in losing the war and makes it look like they couldn't fight well. But well, if you've got smallpox, of course you can't fight well. (laughs) Yeah. You're not just inherently worse off. And the way that there's a big push in the literature these days to talk about the conquest of the desert as a genocide. And I don't think that's an unfair label, but looking at genocide, you have to, more deaths came from smallpox than from actual bullets. And the way that the camps were structured facilitated the spread of the disease. And what I'm trying to do is to look at the epidemiology of a couple of diseases that were moving around at this time and to show how the different environments of the war and changing agriculture and settlement patterns facilitated these diseases that were a big part in keeping indigenous people from prospering and for making their adjustments after the conquest more difficult. Wow. It sounds like there's just so many pieces to the puzzle and you're slowly uncovering. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So this is something we normally ask on the podcast and it's geared more towards kind of the engineering side, but how can listeners of this podcast support your mission in their everyday lives and how would they able to get more involved if they wanted to? Well, I think that works differently than with the engineering PhDs that you've interviewed. But I think the point of doing history is to get in touch with some part of our humanity and to inspire us to think differently about the world and maybe act a little differently. If there's one thing that I hope people take away from reading my work, it's about finding more sustainable ways to live and more equitable ways to live. So I guess I would hope that people would find a new dedication to environmental justice and living sustainably and look for ways that they can change their impact on a personal and hopefully at a policy level too. But it's hard to find a specific takeaway. Yeah. It sounds like it's all about adaptation anyway. Yep. All right. So last question, name of the podcast is somebody call a doctor. So in what sort of emergency should somebody call you? So I'll tell you a little story to illustrate this. About two months ago, I was walking down Foster Street in Durham, North Carolina, going to get a biscuit in the morning. There's a guy sitting on the corner there, right outside the park where the ACLU lines up to try and get people leaving the farmer's market. And he hmm. calls out, hey, hey, can I ask you a question? You know, So I'm, I figure he's uh, trying to engage me in some sort of political conversation or get me to donate to something. And ask me, now, do you know about colonization in Liberia? Why were the Europeans there? I've been trying to figure this out and people keep telling me different things. And that is a question that I can answer. This, <laughs> this guy on the corner of Foster Street. So not super relevant always, but I could answer his question at least. <laughs> it's a very, very about imperialism. <laughs> yes, right. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> Great. Hey, well, Rob, thank you so much for your time. This has been incredibly interesting and, and, and really refreshingly different than some of the engineering interviews. So I'm excited to see where you go. Yeah, well, thanks for talking to me about it. Yeah, thanks, Rob. 
Thanks so much for listening to Somebody Call a Doctor. Today we've been talking with Rob Christensen about his research studying the impact of the environment and conflict on the adaptation of indigenous communities in South America to new socioeconomic orders. For more information on Rob, check out our website, somebodycallaphd.com. If you know a recent PhD candidate or graduate who is doing interesting work worth sharing, let us know by emailing us at somebodycallaphd at gmail.com. See you next time on Somebody Call a Doctor.